I'm Cam, and this is the Nerdbook Review. Today, we are going to have an interview with Harry Connolly for you. As per usual, I'm going to give you all of our information, and then I will do a review at the beginning. I like that style the best, I think, and so we'll continue on for another week. You can reach us on Facebook at our page, Nerdbook Review. You can reach us on Twitter at the Nerdbook Review, on Gmail at nerdbookreview at gmail.com. And once again, if you would be so kind as to leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on, that would be wonderful. All right, let's get to the review itself before the interview. The first thing that I noticed when I started reading this book was that the book is incredibly professional and is something that you can tell this isn't the first book that he, that Harry Connolly has written. I didn't know anything about him when I started reading the book. I didn't look at his bio. I tend to try not to do that just so that um, I don't have any sort of bias as I go into it. And after I'd read the book, my, I just thought, man, this guy is clearly an author. Well, it turns out this isn't anywhere near the first book that Harry Connolly has written, so there's a reason for that. He actually had another series that was a trilogy that had been uh, that was published through Delray Books. And he has also put out um, quite a few. The, the, this series is complete, and it was put out. Um, he funded it through Kickstarter. So the main premise of the book is that the a, an empire, the Peridani Empire, is supposed to be throwing a festival for a mysterious group called the Evening People. The Evening People come through a magical portal, and they like to watch the empire give uh um, do like sports games and poetry and also um sing a song and if the song is um to the people's likings the evening people's liking then they give magical spells to the um to the empire and um i guess actually if they don't like it then they'll give spells that they don't consider to be as important as well so instead of the evening people coming through the portal when it opens, though, a group of basically giant man-bear type things come through the portal, and the empire collapses almost immediately. Its constituent parts start to fight, and all of this just starts to happen pretty much at the beginning of the book. The story is written in a um, through two points-of-view characters, uh, the tier Tejon, is a tier is like a title of a lord he doesn't actually have any independent power of his own he's basically like the weapons master and was given his title because of just being such an amazing soldier and kazia is our second point of view she is one of the tears daughters who actually rebelled against the, the emperor at one point and um was being held as a hostage for his good behavior for his good behavior Kazia is a character who is treated very poorly because of who her father is, but he does a great job of not um, treating her as just an angry young woman who says that the world was wrong to her, and so she's going to be kind of a pain. She will be um, in the presence of a character named Viv, who isn't a point of view, but will be her companion. She's a princess of one of the barbarian tribes and is supposed to actually marry the king i said emperor but the king's son and so she is there kind of for their good behavior as well 
And the two of them will work very well together, which is something that I consider a real strength of the book. A lot of times they would have made, there are a lot of authors, I think, would have made them um, do things that didn't work in their best interest just because they were both teen girls. And that's one thing. They're both practical people. Uh, the Tyr, who I mentioned, he didn't come from nobility. And he will kind of be the character that's going to show just how poorly um, treated the average uh, person is. So basically, the, this is the story of the two of them as they attempt to get Lars, the prince, to safety. And they get split apart pretty quickly. So I know that's not a ton of information, but I will say this. The two point of view characters are very strong and well written. And they're the kind of, I just think that his character development is definitely a, a huge strength in this book. I just... I really do feel like a lot of authors have a tendency to uh, treat characters who are treated poorly in the beginning and make them do just stupid things. And those are the kind of things that in real life would have gotten you killed. And Connolly is not going to do that at all. There's going to be a lot of characters that are awful people who you'll see through the tear or Kazia's eyes, but you're not going to deal with that directly with the two characters. So, um, the, and I, as I said, the magic system, um, people, there's rumors of wizards who had their own magic, but all of the spells that they can cast are variations on one of 13 or 14 spells that they were given by the evening people. So, the, um, oh, the one other thing I guess I should get into is tech for the most part is about um, Bronze Age, but the Empire had uh, Iron Age technology largely because of the abilities they had through magic. And the way I looked at it was is that the empire was kind of split up where you had the earliest parts who had more power and prestige and rights than parts that had been added to the empire later. So um, barbarians on the outer rungs, it's harder for them to move up even if they are qualified because they're considered barbarians still. I kind of thought Roman Empire when I was reading this and considered that a good point of view. I think we do a pretty good job of discussing a lot of this in the interview. So I think that that is good enough for here. I hope you guys all enjoy this. Our first of the hopefully 10 um, Spiffbo 2017 author interviews. Thank you. The Nerdbook Review is happy to welcome Harry Connolly tonight. His debut novel, Child of Fire, was named to Publishers Weekly's Best 100 Books of 2009, and the two that followed received starred reviews. His epic fantasy trilogy, The Great Way, was crowdfunded, and at the time was the ninth most funded fiction Kickstarter ever. The Way into Chaos, the first book in the Great Way series, is a finalist in this year's Spiffbo competition, and the book we will be talking more about during this interview. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. Great, great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, uh, I have been writing since I was very, very small. Uh, ever since I, my, ever since I was old enough for my mom to hand me a book and say, you know, somebody put those words in there. You know, somebody wrote that, and I was just like, you know, like a little kid, and just like, what? <laughs> Amazing. So uh, I have been writing on and off for my whole life. And um, 
I grew up in Philadelphia and came to Seattle to sort of restart. And ever since I got to Seattle, I have been doing just one Joe job after another so that I could have plenty of time for writing. And it, uh, God help me, it's sort of paid off. <laughs> yeah, you have published quite a few novels at this point. Yeah, I'm at, I guess, oh, I, I've uh, maybe eight books or nine or ten, if you count the short fiction collection. I, I'd have to look at my, I'd have to look at my blog to see how many, <laughs> how many books I have on there. Yeah, and you went to Temple, correct? Temple University, yeah. Yeah, you know, one um, of one of my favorite professors in college was actually from Temple, and he had the the same Philly accent that I hear from you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, going to Temple was a huge mistake, <laughs> <laughs> not, which is not a knock on the school. It's a terrific school. Um, and they offered me a free ride based on my SAT scores, like a four-year um, fully paid scholarship, which was, you know, awesome. Oh, yeah. But uh, all my friends from high school, when they went to college, they, like, left, you know what I mean? They went to some other place, and they moved out or whatever. And I went to Temple as a commuter school. And I ended up living still at home for several years, and I completely missed out on the social end of things. And um, I think I could have—I don't know. I, sometimes I think I should have just taken a year and grown up a little more before I had went to college. But yeah, it's too late for regrets now. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, how did you end up in Seattle? Then was it just a decision to to get away from Philly, or? Yes, I wanted to get away from Philadelphia, and I wasn't super picky about where I was going. A friend of mine uh, had literally just moved out there um, for a girl, and that had fallen apart, and he had a, like a new apartment, and I was calling and talking to him and had, talking to him about it, and he was like, yes, come stay with us, you know what I mean? And uh, I had to go to my parents and say, oh, I'm moving to Seattle, Washington, and they're like, I don't under oh Washington, oh that's that's not too far down the coast, right? And I was like, no, no. <laughs> I took out the big like family atlas and flipped it all the way open. I'm like, oh, we're over here, and Seattle's all the way, you know what I mean? With the oh yeah, the double page spread, extra size coffee table book. They were uh, not as pleased to hear that I'd be literally as far across the country as just could be, and you know, stay, still be on the continent, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that uh, I, I, literally, I was just trying to um, change my life and get away from things. Well, that's awesome, and it sounds like uh, it was a great adventure and, and something that you've actually enjoyed. It's literally the only thing I ever did in my life that I did before it became cool. Like, <laughs> in 1989, I moved to Seattle. Shortly after, there was the whole like Nirvana and the grunge thing, and then people were like, "Oh, Seattle's so cool! They're going to move there. Oh, that's the Seattle look, you know, with the or oh, the T-shirt with horizontal stripes." And and my friends were like, "All our friends back in Philly are telling us this is the Seattle look." But um, I would buy I would buy albums, and the band would break up. I would like start growing my sideburns. Everybody would shave theirs. You know what I mean? Like literally as soon as I do anything in my life, it immediately makes it stop being cool. <laughs> Moving to Seattle is the sole exception. Awesome. Well, Hey, you know what? You've got that going for you, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, can we, uh, talk a little bit about your, uh, we, you said that your mom got you started on writing, but how did you get into, uh, writing novels and, and kind of deciding the, the way you were going to go? 
Um, well, I, I was always a science fiction and fantasy fan. Uh, my older sister uh, is a fantasy reader, a science fiction reader too. And so, and and you know, I, when I was little, you know, I looked up to my older sister quite a lot, and I read a lot of her books. Um, the big Rogers Elazeny fan, and just like all kinds of stuff, loved it. Uh, and I always wanted to be a you know uh, a writer of one kind or another. But it was the novels that I was reading, and in the <laughs> so, I assume that was like a dog. That was that was my little Boston Terrier who just walked up to me and literally flopped a uh, a dog toy on my lap and then growled like, "Let's play." <laughs> so I apologize. Excellent. One second, let no, me go. No, that's, that's me, no worries. Let me go shut my door real quick. <laughs> Sorry about that. I forgot to no shut worries. the door to my office. <laughs> no worries. So um, I had been a fiction writer. And uh, when I moved to Seattle, the guy who was my friend who said, yes, yes, come stay with us. He was an actor, is an actor still. And he and his roommate were both like, you should write scripts for us. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. I had no idea what a script looked like. You know what I mean? I had no idea what I was doing. But <laughs> um, the funny thing was, if you go, if I went online and like a couple of years after that, you know, the internet started to be really a thing. But if you went online and were like, how to write good, you know what I mean? You'd like searching how to write good. Um, <laughs> if I'd go to the fiction writers and they would just say things like, yeah, just try to be interesting and, uh, you know, try, you know, don't bore anybody and ha tell a really good story, something that means something to you. And I would just be like, that's not helpful. But if you go over to like the screenplay world, those people like had it all down to like this formulas, you know what I mean? Like, oh, here's the story break and then this page and that page. Here's like the six intros that will make readers love your character. And at the time, I was like, this is exactly what I need. I need to find out how to do all the things. But um, after going through like one after another, all this advice, you know, it all sort of processed, you know, went into my brain and I just processed, processed, and I came out the other end as, and I realized all those lessons were basically try not to bore anybody, you know, be interesting. Tell us, say something that, you know, it was, I eventually arrived at all the fiction lessons that I had, uh, that I had brushed off at the beginning. And I actually did with a friend of mine here in Seattle, make a low budget movie. Oh, that's um, awesome. And what, what was it about? That was, uh, <laughs> it was a horror movie cause low budget horror oh, called the dead, the dead feed about a video feed of, uh, of, that shows a person being murdered, like their TV will come on and then they'll see video of a killer approaching them and murdering them like before it happens, uh, which is, that was my friend's idea. And I wrote the script for it and we had, to, you know, got, he cast the actors and we directed and the whole thing, um, barred me from the set, just like a Hollywood movie. Uh, and, uh, when it was finally done, it was like 62 minutes, I think. And it, it was just weird. And, not very successful and I I was so unhappy about it. I was like, why am I doing this when I could be doing the other? This thing that I love still. And uh so I, I just turned went back to the fiction, which is what I really cared about most and always had. And uh, you know, it was uh, two books later I had my deal with Del Rey. Yeah, and and was that the the um the Twenty Palaces series? Yeah, Del Rey was the Twenty Palaces books. Um, the first one was Child of Fire, um, 
and uh, the then it was game. Child of Fire was 2009, and then Game of Cages and Circle of Enemies, 2010, 2011. Um, and Del Rey was very excited about those books. Um, I was very lucky to work with uh, Betsy Mitchell, who's you know this super editor. You know what I mean? She founded Warner Aspect, and she's just terrific. Um, she really made those books a lot better than they would have been otherwise. Uh, and how come you, you didn't continue on with them then? Well, <laughs> uh, I like them and Betsy liked them. And uh, there's a certain core of readership out there in the world that liked them. But on a larger scale, people just didn't respond well. You know, the, the truth is, the truth is they were very excited for them. And they made a, what's called a preempt offer on it which means that a bunch of different publishers were interested and they figured it might go to an auction. So they said, we're going to preempt that auction and just go straight to the price we figure the auction will go to. And so they offered me six figures for three books. And I was like, yes, you know what I mean? Like (laughs) I'm doing hand springs in my living room. And uh, literally like, you know, the year before I was looking, looking across the table at my wife, apologizing to her for how much money I make. And now we're like, woohoo! I'm, you know, it's all, it's, I got it made. Except uh, uh, immediately after that was the 2008 um, crash of the economy. And then uh, when the books came out, um, I was very lucky to get a blurb by Jim Butcher. And so a lot of people grabbed the book, were like, oh, Jim Butcher, you know, urban fantasy. But the 20 Palaces book, excuse me, the 20 Palaces books are not particularly like the, Jim Butcher's Dresden Files books. Um, they're kind of darker and they're not as powerful and the hero isn't as likable. And, um, you know, if you're a reader who likes that, you really like it and you tweet at me like, you know, maybe once a week to tell me I should continue the series. Um, but for the larger, for the larger audience, a lot of people are like, you know what? I don't like these people and I don't want to read these anymore. And this is all bad and not good. So the, Delray gambled on the series. They gave it a ton of support. They did a bunch of things to try and push it with the readers. And uh, what they ended up with was a, a, a small but dedicated core of readers, but that wasn't large enough to justify um, offering me a contract on a fourth or fifth book. And once that happened, you know, then we were done and the series was done. And the old saying is that it's easier to break in than stay in. And I broke in, and but I couldn't stay in because each book sold fewer than the one than the one before it. And it was a de- this downward spiral that, uh, that, you know, I couldn't counteract not without, you know, changing things in a way that would make them less, less interesting, I guess. Yeah. I understand what you're saying there. And basically it sounds like your characters were about like seven or eight years too soon with the series where now the anti-hero is, uh, is so much bigger than it was, uh, you know, back 10 years ago well for anybody listening who likes anti-heroes those books are still out there um uh but uh you know the the truth is uh, uh there was a bunch of bad luck uh, surrounding that series uh, just like not just the crash of the economy but some other little things uh but it's on you know it's still it's on me to make the books undeniable but to make it so that when a reader picks it up and they read it and they're just like this is the greatest thing ever. I have to tell everyone I know. And once they start doing that, then you start like being like 
Scott Lynch or Pat Rothfuss or Jim Butcher, and you start really selling, 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 and you just have to sit back and let the readers that readers do all the work for you. And, uh, and those are books that are undeniable for the fans. And it turned out that the, the great way books, whatever their, their virtues, and I think they have some, um, they were quite deniable. And uh, you mean the, the, the 20 palaces? Yes. I'm sorry. The 20 palaces. Yeah. Yeah. And, then and and so is that kind of how you got into uh, doing the the Kickstarter uh, crowdfunding for the Great Way series? Then, uh, yeah, I uh, I Kickstarted the Great Way. Actually, the Great the Great Way. I wrote that first book, The Way into Chaos, and gave it to my agent, and she was very enthusiastic. Um, but the publishers just didn't want it, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, but uh, so I, what I did was I I finished the. The series, and you know, once I had the f- the full first draft of the whole thing, I went to Kickstarter to to fund it. Yeah, and that it does surprise me actually, because the great way in terms of, um, I feel like it is a very um, traditional fantasy series in a way. In terms of, um, I mean, epic. It, it is a true epic fantasy series. Well, thank you. And I, I, it was what I wanted, what I was kind of going for. I wanted to write a book that was exciting and fast paced, like a thriller, but also, you know, full of the magic and the secondary world and all the rest of it. The, the books I had grown up reading. Yeah. And the one that, what I think for me, the greatest strength of your novel is the, like the way you flesh out the world, but also the way that, you don't kind of you don't try to create a like a utopian or even even though the the empire is you know by far the most advanced and i guess um maybe most forward looking of all of the kingdoms in in your or, or places in your world it's still a place where we get to see the little, the view of the little guy here and there and you understand that it's not a uh, that that it's great for the people on top, but that just like real life, where the peasants lived a pretty uh, uh, poor life at times. Just like it is today. I mean, people struggle at the bottom, and uh, they live high on the hog at the top. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's I, the natural, it's, it's the, it's, I shouldn't, I almost said it's the natural way of things, but that's not really true. It's, it's what people who have uh, power and influence do. Yeah, and... So it's, it's so it's just you know honest, more honest to write a, a book that way. Yeah, and that honesty, I just that I think that for me that was the thing that I I liked the best about your novel. That just when I when I sat down to look at doing an actual review, because I will have a review at the beginning of this um, podcast. That I sat and you kind of sit down and look and see what are you going to talk about? Like, what did you think were the best points? What were the worst points? And you sit down and just right away, the thing that I saw and thought and that I enjoyed the most was the little scenes here and there you had that were from the peasants' perspective. And especially when you're, when the tear, uh, is it Tejon? How, how did you, how do I? Uh, I, I say, uh, Tejan Tragar, but I am apparently I'm one of the only fantasy writers who doesn't have like a really like a religious idea about how the word should be 
pronounced, you know what I mean? I just, however you want to say it, as far as I'm concerned, it's fine. It, they're just words on the page to me. It's just a couple of letters. So if you want to say Tejon or Tejon or I don't know what else, that's all, that's all cool by me. Well, since you're the author, I'm just going to uh, to go with what you, <laughs> what you Everybody say. Everybody says that. No matter how many times I explain, everybody goes, well, that's how you say it, so I'm going to do it that way, too. <laughs> you know what? I'll call it what I want to call it normally, but as long as I'm talking to you, we're going to go with Tejon. <laughs> fair enough. More than fair. But, yeah, with him... Um, the the specific scene that I that I think was my favorite in the entire novel was when he is um, speaking with the the people in the camp, and I don't want to go like into too much uh, spoiler here, but where he sees just how poor the plight of the the average peasant is, and he's realizing that this is in his own um, empire, even you know, and and he's never really thought of that before, even though he started off as a peasant, he was still a soldier to start off with, so he still had that. Um, those advantages, you know, that, that maybe the, right. just the, the, the average scullery maid did not have. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's important for the book in that the, the main characters start off thinking, well, we have to fix this. You know what I mean? Like when everything collapses, they're, the empire's attacked, everything goes wrong. They're like, we have to fix this and we got to get our country back. And then you go out and you see them out in the world and you're like, okay, maybe not the country, maybe not like it was, but we got to get something back. And then, you know, by the end of the third book, sir, the, the stakes are actually this survival of the human race on that continent. So, you know, but they begin wanting to save what they had before because, because people like stability and they like things that they like to have order. Yeah. Well, I think that, that, you know, just, as a as a student of history myself, that for the average person, even if life is terrible, it's always better if you're not having to worry about dying from um, some random raider at the same time, even if uh, your life isn't good otherwise. Exactly, and yeah, I'm I'm I got nothing to add to that because that's that sums it up. <laughs> well, how did you decide on the the political system and the magic system of the world then? Um, I know it's something a little different with the the, the, the evening people who um, right. I will hopefully have talked a little bit more about in the uh, the book review at the beginning, but that they actually are giving people magic. It's not something that's inherent to humanity. How did you decide on on that? That's something a little bit different from uh, I think that most other series I've read. Well, so let me tell you how this how the the story came about. Uh, or how the books, the series actually happened. Um, I am a homeschooling parent. And when my son, uh, I don't know, six, seven years ago, maybe just six years ago, um, he was still doing his school stuff. And we were hunting around for lessons. And I was in the Barnes & Noble. I pulled this book off the shelf that was called Adventures in Fantasy. And as I'm saying it to you, I'm looking across the room at my bookshelf and looking at it on the shelf right there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, is written by John Gust. And Gust was a um, teacher at the LA Unified School District, a not what you'd call a beloved institution. And he took all of the curriculum that they wanted to impose on him for teaching English to like kids in fourth or fifth grade or whatever, and he just pitched it. You know what I mean? He just said, we're not doing that. 
And instead, what he did was he had them all write a um, a fantasy novel, quote unquote novel. You know, there's like ten thousand words, maybe. And so this whole book was his lesson plan, and it's not only full of you know information about what young people might want to know about you know here's centaurs here's dwarves or whatever it also includes a section on joseph campbell's the the storyteller's journey or whatever it also includes worksheets on adjectives and transition words and all sorts of things and you built a storyline with a hero and a sidekick and a mentor and some other figures you know the enemies and the conflict characters and all this other stuff and I was like, okay, we're, this is a ready-made homeschool lesson. It will take a long time for him, to, and it will cover a lot of things. Because every homeschooling parent worries that they're missing things. There are holes in their kids' education. I brought it to my son, and I showed it to him, and he was looking at it. He's like, okay, Dad, this is great, but I'm not doing this by myself. Like, you have to write a book, too. And so... You know, he and I both sat down together and we're doing these worksheets filling out for like, who's the hero, who's the mentor, who's the sidekick. And as I was doing the book, I, you know, just being me, I had this like, okay, well, the hero is not going to be the hero. The sidekick and the mentor are going to be the heroes of this book. And the hero is going to seem like a hero. And then, but we're really going to have these other two characters. And then the evening people, once I started, like, once you start just filling in forms or whatever, like, you're like, oh, I got to think of something here. Let's put in this. And the evening people just became, um, you know, this higher higher species, these higher beings. And, uh, and somehow, somehow I got the idea that uh, I would want the, the magic to be coming from them and to differentiate the magic from what I had done in the um, 20, 20 Palaces books. Because... At first, I was like, I was looking at my notes and realized, you know, I'm kind of doing the same thing again. I can't do that. So the magic is very physical. You know, it purifies water. It heals injuries or illnesses, you know, that kind of thing, moves objects. But magic can't make you fall in love. It can't make you go to war. It can't make you love or hate or believe in something, right? But, and so the... The evening people, they have a strong command of magic, but they don't have a strong command of art, because art is what will make you weep or laugh or jump for joy. So it just it just seemed logical to me to have a kind of a festival where there's an exchange. The evening people come to this hill in the middle of nowhere where there's, you know, basically a herding clan lives, and they exchange stories music songs here's some food you know what i mean it's like like a festival and at the end of it if the evening people are pleased they give back a something extremely powerful which is a spell single spell and so it really started off as a as a, a need to differentiate things and also a reason for the opening of the book so that all of the most powerful people in the empire would be in a place where they are not as well defended as they should be in which everything goes wrong. And the, you know, the head of the empire comes off almost immediately. Yeah. You, you pretty much decapitate the, uh, um, uh, the leadership of the, uh, is it the parad? Is it, how did you say it? Paradini? Par- parad- 
I say Peridane, and the people are the Peridane people. Okay. Um, so but, you know that's yeah. how I say it. <laughs> well, good, good. So the Peridane Empire, and and it basically just crumbles right off the bat. And I mean, like I said, we're not giving spoilers here because it's just what happens immediately. And, right, right. Yeah, and then we break down into this is where like the individual lords who are called the Tears. Is that how you? Is that how I should say it? Tire, tear. I say tear. Okay. Well, I'm continuing on with uh, tear. Then I actually was saying things pretty close to what you had. You had them. So, <laughs> so the uh, the tears. And instead of, as you said, instead of helping out with the empire, they basically just decide that they're going to carve out their own little kingdoms again uh, because of this. And that's this is where an awful lot of the issues arise because of that. Well, yeah, they're not. Uh, I mean, they. I wanted the that my idea for the one of the ideas, you know, because every book is a, a bunch of different ideas that all sort of come in together. And uh, I had been reading a bunch of fantasies, watching old, watching movies, and just about every um, fantasy setting that you can think of has this like older empire. You know what I mean? Um, they. They, Valerian's deal on the in the Song of Ice and Fire is, is there's this like huge empire. It spanned the um, the known world or whatever. Um, gave everybody a common language, and then sometime in the past, it collapsed and left nothing behind but some old ruins. Like there's so it's it's basically Rome. And I thought, well, why don't I just write a book about the actual collapse of one of those old empires? You know what I mean? A Bronze Age culture that's maybe goosed up beyond the level, their tech level that they should have because they have, they're the, they have sole access to magic. And, uh, and yeah, so nobody wants to be, you know, under the thumb of a foreign power and the, the peoples that, and the lands that they travel through are based very loosely on kind of Grecian city states, um, very loosely. And so it's a dis- it's it's a empire full of disparate people that only seems unified when you're like standing next to the throne. Yeah, and you know what I actually thought about was the uh, like early Roman period where you had the like the actual um, Latin people who had um, pretty much had citizenship if they even if they weren't quite fully, and then you got into like the uh, the, the northern um, Italian ones, which were. They still had; they were considered Italians, but not quite Romans. And then you you went out from there, where you had the the Federate troops and the Federate uh, peoples, and that's kind of like the way I I looked at it, based on the, the tiers of you know um, uh, when they they came into the empire. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I don't know if that had any any influence at all on you. You know that for me it was just a a matter of um, looking at. Well, for one thing, it was looking at the map I had to draw because I was doing this crazy um, kids' book, uh, like school program. And for the other was um, just trying to think, you know, what would this really be like? You know, what would these people want? Uh, and the older I get, the less the less faith I have in people in positions of power. And um, it seems like there's no there's no level of cynicism that really does goes over the top. So once I started having various, um, once, once there were other people who had access to p- getting power, potentially having power, I, I couldn't, like, I couldn't in good conscience write them as, you know, these virtuous types. 
I'm not sure if that answers your your point. If that is actually on point yet. <laughs> well, that's all right. Um, so, but but with what you're talking about there, though, um, so kind of one of our our two big point of view characters is that tear um, tear Tejon or Tejon, and he is. I think he's kind of your the viewpoint into that where he has power but he doesn't have any of his own power base because his his role is largely ceremonial um from being such a great uh warrior do you think that did you put him in there basically to show us that that view into that window i guess is he our window um i guess he is uh he's i mean yeah you you could i I think they're both I think they both have those windows because Kezia goes and um, actually lives among other peoples who are also um, also suffer the effects of the the imperial power that has just collapsed. So um, the the both of them give different perspectives. Um, I think it, uh, in a lot of ways, both characters um, find themselves very high up and in a sort of a privileged place without feeling like they themselves have power or they themselves are like big mucky mucks. But they still, you know, they're they're friends with the prince and they live in this nice place. And it's only after they are sort of sent out into the rest of the world um, that they begin to realize just the people hate them because of um because of what they represent even if they don't think they themselves represent it if that makes any sense yeah no i i completely understand what you're saying especially with kezia where if we um she was a a, a daughter of a noble but who was a hostage and so she probably doesn't feel like she should be um, treated that way just in general with how poorly she's treated by the imperial court for most of her life Right, and and there's and being her, and then being out in the world, it's there's really no space to explain to somebody. Actually, even though I lived at court, uh, you know, people were mean to me. You know what I mean? If you're, you know, that's not a conversation you have with somebody whose you know family has been murdered by imperial troops who are trying to seize their land. I mean, it just uh, no one's going to see the your plight in the same way that you will. Yeah, and with Kezia and uh, Viv as well, do you think... My question is, I guess, I'm trying to think of the right way to put this. Did you sit down and consciously make the decision that they were going to be uh, fairly nimble in this first book? And what I mean is that Kezia, you could have written her as just a, a better young woman, and Viv as a princess, you could have written her as being imperious the entire time the two of them are together. But do you think that, I, like, did you just sit down and say, you know what, I'm not going to to make such one-dimensional characters? Or do you think that's something that, that just has come from your experience with writing um, for as long as you have? Uh, I think a lot of it is that um, I wanted the the female characters to be friends because you don't see that a lot a lot of times there's a rivalry or some kind of like uh you know some kind of nasty conflict and they they do butt heads at the beginning and then they make their peace with each other um, but i wanted them to be friends and i wanted to ha- them to have a way to kind of band together so that they could face other dangers later on in a in a more realistic way 
Um, but uh, I've also been reading a, a bunch of mis- – I, I mean, for the last, like, 20-some years, along with the fantasy that I read, I, I read a lot of mystery. And uh, mystery novels, when they're done well, um, have a, a, a really a, a, a pleasant psychological complexity to them that I, that I appreciate. You really dig into people's stories in a mystery novel. And um, I, I try to bring some of that to the books I write, um, for better or worse. Um, people with people have the stories to tell about their past, the stories that have for, formed their personalities, formed their worldview, and uh, and I, I I don't know, I, it's just something that interests me, and and I just really wanted the the characters to. I really wanted them to come together as friends before it got too 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 far along. Yeah, well, and they have, in a lot of ways, they have a practicality as they're moving along and becoming friends because there's times where, you know, one or the other will do things that the other one doesn't like. And it seems like a lot of authors, I think, would have just started making them catty or especially Kasia. <laughs> would have just shut down and been like, nope, I'm not going to trust this person. And I have been, you know, crapped on, <laughs> to use it a word that I can, for this um, my entire life. So I'm just going to be a bitter and angry person. And I think it's a real strength that you have a character who, I mean, she has some issues because of the way she's been treated, but she's not going to just shut down and be an idiot because of that. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, it's not. That's not something you want for the story, and that's, yeah, that's a that's never a good choice. But you know what? It's a choice that I think is made far more often than you would imagine it's taken. And so, <laughs> I, I mean, I think I've read a lot of novels where that has been the case, or where it's taken a long time for that, you know, there to be that change. Yeah, I think I think part of what you need to part of what the characters need is to have a, a kind of a crucible where they are together and they cannot be separate from each other. They have a reason to be together and to a, a reason for them to, um, to be forced to work together. And if the characters are, you know, reasonably believable, they will make an accommodation the way people in the real world do. I don't know. I just get, you know, what's funny is, is that like an example, though, of growing up, I read Wheel of Time over and over and over again. But I still think that the well, I mean, he, he kind of just wandered off here and there. But his portrayal of uh, Nynaeve and how she just is angry and tugs on her braid. And I mean, that whole joke of the counting how many times she tugs her braid in that series, it's like in the <laughs> hundreds of times, is something that to this day, my buddies who do this podcast with me, who I read these books with in even in college, we all just agree that that's just, you know, that's always going to be a downside to his writing, um, even though we all loved it. But I just feel like you don't fall into any of those traps with any of your characters, really. And how... I, I mean, is that just something that you that you had to make a conscious decision, or do you think that's just something that that you just think about how people would really be? I guess is the question I should have asked. Well, I, one of the things I should I should probably mention I, I've I've read the first of the Wheel of Time books, and maybe I was just too old, but I, I just didn't really respond to it. 
but it's a it's a common authorial technique to include like a signature gesture that a character does so that when readers are reading it they'll know oh this is the ray tug in one or this is the you know the one that puts their hands on their hips you know what i mean like there's <laughs> yeah. there's like one physical body part that you describe in a way the same way every time one gesture that they do and it's just a way to make sure the people know which characters help them identify a lot and especially in a large cast and i don't know maybe that's what he's doing i i don't know for me at least um you know i i just uh for me at least whenever i get a here's i'm going to actually back up and approach this from a different direction whenever i have a writer's block based on the story i'm working on it's never because i don't know like what's going to happen next necessarily it's almost always because I don't know how the character feels in that moment. Like, what's their emotional state? Are they angry at the person who tried to help them because they don't want to, you know, they 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 want them to be enemies and they don't want to reconcile? Are they um, ashamed at the joy they felt at having fought an enemy and defeated them so thoroughly? You know what I mean? Are they grieving here? Are they desperate to be home? Are they homesick? You know, that's always this kind of like, what do they feel in, in here right now in this moment? That's always what makes me stop and go, oh, I don't know what to write next. And I think that um, taking time with that really helps to make characters that people connect with. Yeah, and, and that's, like I said, I mean, I keep saying this is a strength, but I mean, obviously, as you've if you've seen the way that I rated the book, that... I really thought that this was just such a solidly and well-written book, and I think your character development is is I mean is right up there as as the top reasons why I enjoyed the book as much as I did. So I guess you know thinking that that's that you think about like what their motivations are. That's you know that's a, I guess a big a big reason why. So let's go ahead and as we're getting. Uh, a little, well, about almost forty-five minutes in here. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, some of your other stuff as well. Then we kind of got into talking about this uh, this series right off the bat instead of following my usual uh, line, but that's absolutely fine. Um, like I said, we'll have the uh, a better book synopsis and review at the beginning of the the episode um, sure. that I'll add in, in myself. So what are what are you working on currently? And I understand that you have a book that just came out. Yes. So um, the book that just came out is um, called The Twisted Path. It's actually a novella. Um, the final Twenty Palaces book uh, was Circle of Enemies. That came out in two thousand eleven, and that was the last one that Del Rey um, published. Shortly after that, I um, self published a prequel, which was cleverly titled Twenty Palaces. Um, and then after that, after, and I, after thinking about it, I was like, you know, this, this series didn't go anywhere and it didn't really work. And I really hate giving it up, but I'm going to stop writing this and write something else. And in fact, I did and moved on to the great way. Um, but I've met a bunch of authors who are doing pretty well writing these novellas, you know, it's shorter. And it, it's not like I could spend a year writing a book for 20 palaces that, you know, nobody's going to read. Or that few people will read. And just as something for like the fans who really, really like Ray Lilly and the rest of the cast and that. So that the Twisted Path is is brand new and out right now. Um, I also um, 
I also wrote a, a, a book for Evil Hat. Evil Hat's a game company. They do Fate Core and um, Fate Accelerated, a couple of different um, systems. One of their older games was called um, Spirit of the Century. So I wrote a pulp, uh, like a 30s pulp adventure um, story uh, called King Khan. And it's about uh, the star is one of the NPCs from the game of uh, an intelligent gorilla who teaches at Oxford. <laughs> and I was like, well, he's an intelligent gorilla. He teaches at Oxford. He's a fussy British guy, maybe. And let's have him go to Hollywood in the studio system the year immediately after King Kong came out. And so it's this, you know, shrinking beams and lightning guns and demons and like Aztec mummies and the whole the whole thing. Luchadors. Um, it was a, a lot of fun and, and, you know, very kind of lighthearted. Another book that I self-published and, and actually uh, this book ended up being one of the stretch goals for the Great Way Kickstarter was something called a, a key, an egg, an unfortunate remark. And that was a pacifist urban fantasy where the protagonist is a 65-year-old woman who's a mix between anti-mame and Gandalf. <laughs> and, you know, because I would read these urban fantasy novels, and they were so violent, and everybody sobs everything through, like, murder. I'm like, why is everybody acting like they live in this, you know, lawless frontier? You know, why are they just all killing each other if for whatever and um why is in, in modern times is everything falling on these you know 20 something year olds i mean it's the modern day older people know what they're doing why don't we have a book that's about actually an older person and mainly i wrote it because i wanted to read it i wanted a kind of a urban fantasy miss marple kind of thing and i kept going around asking people do you know of any urban fantasy where the you know fantasy novel where the the main character is in their 60s, you know, an older woman, and people are like, burst out laughing, hell no. Well, there's, you know, this book where the character's, you know, she's 35 years old. Like, 35, that's not, I'm, I'm way older than that already. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wrote it for myself, and um, uh, it is the probably the most lighthearted thing I wrote uh, as, as a pacifist urban fantasy. Um, and I tucked it into the... Uh, the Great Way Kickstarter, and it is unlike most of my other work, but One Man, which is a book my agent has, and as she is sending out the publishers as we speak. Another is um, a, like a mystery novel that I wrote. I've been wanting to write a mystery novel for a long, long time. So I got it out of my system. I'll probably self-publish that one in the, in the new year. And then I have a new book that I'm writing right now, which is so new, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> to be honest, uh, is the Great Way trilogy done then, and you're you're, you're done with that world from from here on? That you think then? Um, I did write a, a short story for an anthology um, for Sean. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank, and now if I if he ever hears this, I'm going to be embarrassed uh, <laughs> for his for the the Unbound Unfettered uh, anthology series. I wrote um, I wrote a short story that actually takes place during the action of the way into chaos. It's called the way into oblivion. And in, in the way into chaos, the characters talk about what's going on in the world around them. And they, they talk about you know, this other people who were under siege and were destroyed. And, uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to write this book, it's going to tie into my others. I might as well write that story. You know what I mean? So I, so I did. I, and it's yet another, 
<laughs> yet another fall of the of a uh, of a people and you know basically Sean Speakman I'm sorry Sean if you're listening to this I <laughs> sincerely apologize I just totally drew a blank but um unbounded it's a it's a it's a great anthology anyway well nice nice I'm sorry Go ahead. I was. I wanted to ask one thing then, that you uh, seem to more than anyone else I've talked to so far that is in the either self-publishing or um, who has a, a traditional book deal um, seem to be uh, pretty comfortable walking between the two worlds. How do you? Is this something that you intend to continue doing? Is you'll self-publish some stuff and then send other stuff out to to look at by a publisher? Yeah, that, that's something I would like to keep doing. Um, uh, Tim Pratt is a, also a hybrid author, and he, he has referred to his traditionally published books as lost leaders, um, which I think is funny. Uh, uh, the, the, old, the old saw is that the front list drives the back list. You know what I mean? The authors who do what, in the, at least in the past, authors who did well, who made a good living, um, made that living by selling their older books. Like the stuff they had written years ago is still on the shelves. People are still picking them up, right? But those older books wouldn't continue to sell unless they put out something new, the front list. So you put out new books and then you get new readers and then the, old, the new readers will pick up the old stuff and that's how you keep the lights on. Um, for me, it seems, you know, it seems like a no-brainer that people who you having a backlist with um, self-published stuff in it would be, um, well, you know, hopefully uh, would help me to keep the uh, keep food on the table and <laughs> yeah. keep doing this thing. Yeah. So um, with the actual uh, this the Spiffbo competition and being a finalist, have you seen any any spikes because of that? You know, uh, I got an email from uh, my agents. Um, the the way the great way um, there's a, a audiobook publisher who uh, picked it up and put out an audiobook of it, and they sent an email to them saying, you know, hey, uh, is there something going on here? Because we're suddenly selling a bunch of his books. What's the promotion? It's like, oh yeah, hey, uh, it's this, you know. And I sent a link back. It's probably it's this. Um, so uh, the audiobooks are apparently doing well. I didn't really see a large bump in sales of the um, actual ebook. I don't know why it uh, just it seemed like you know uh, nothing. I, I know there. Are, I, I've seen some new reviews come up, and I've seen people talking about it, but uh, the numbers for me didn't change very much. All righty then. So, uh, what are you looking forward to coming into the into next year then? For any for your writing or just anything, I guess. I think for the next year, I'm I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that one of the publishers will pick up uh, one man. Uh, I, I I think Circle of Enemies is probably the best thing I've ever written, but one man maybe is close to being as good or maybe better. And um, uh, my new project that I don't even know anything about, I'm I I had to take a, some time away from it to release the twisted path, you know what I mean? To, you know, to write blog posts about it and go on Twitter and say, Oh, buy my book, please. But, um, you know, I'm, uh, whatever, whatever it turns out to be, I'm excited to, to, to make it happen. 
Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. And where can you be reached? Can you just list all the places? And I will also include all of these places in the show notes. Okay, my uh, my website is harryjconnolly.com. Um, generally, if you Google for 20 palaces, uh, my site comes up. I'm also on Twitter at ByHarryConnolly. Um, for folks that uh, want to follow me on Twitter, although I have no idea why anyone would ever want to follow me on Twitter, I tweet uh, the craziest jokes and just talk about I don't know what weird stuff. It's I, I'm just there to have fun. I literally I follow people because they're funny. Um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I have I I have people following there. I have no idea why. I I feel like I should apologize to them once a week. And and make sure you have that that by Harry Connolly the by because there are like thirty Harry Connollys if you just uh, search for that on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, and um, um there's actually a uh, a um, politician in Ireland who I'm sure has to continually go to people. Yes, I know about the guy who writes monster books. It's not me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, vote for me. I don't write monster books. <laughs> very nice and oh, you, oh go you know ahead what I, you know what i'm going to also send you as something that i you know i i've almost forgot about um uh, because the great way was part of a uh part of a homeschooling project um my son and i uh worked together to make a book trailer for it out of animated legos his legos so um there's actually a book trailer on youtube and I'll drop it in a, an email to you so you have the link. Oh yeah, that'd be nice. So yeah, it's I mean it's a it's a it's a silly thing. It's obviously homemade by a dad and his kid, but um, <laughs> I think it's fun and awesome. There you go. Well, hey, thank you so much. I had a great time, and uh, especially it was just so insightful um, talking about some of this. Sometimes when I do these interviews, we can get to just talking about the like just another description of the book. And I think that uh, it, it was nice getting into, you know, some of the uh, the background and, and the reasons why um, you wrote the way that you wrote. And so um, I really appreciate it. And I had a great time tonight. I did too. Thanks, man. All right. Hey, thank you. 